If you're visiting with us this morning, we don't normally show kid videos, although if you want us to, we might start. Um, But uh, it's neat to see what the kids are doing in the back. And for those of you that are sending your kids out every week, I hope you know that the people uh, taking care of your kids, pouring into your kids, that there's just a lot of thought about what's happening back there and helping your kids begin to see and delight and to follow Jesus. So uh, one of the things that comes up when we see Ten Commandments, and personally I don't like even the the name Ten Commandments because for some of us, commandments cause us to bristle, and it's like, I won't do that, but it's a good thing. I'm not going to do it because I don't want to do anything that I'm told to do or commanded to do that causes us to bristle. Others of us see commandments in Ten and go, all right, I can do all of those. I'm good, and and neither is how the Lord wants us to respond. This is really a Ten part constitution between God and his people. God and this newly formed nation of Israel that is being brought out of slavery to Egypt and into what is going to be a new chapter where God is going to continue to unveil the covenantal or the promised blessings that he promised to the descendants of Abraham. It's going to unfold in front of us here in the book of Exodus. And and so one of the things when we see laws or we see rules, and some of you know that the first five books of the Old Testament are often referred to as the law or in Hebrew, the Torah. Uh, And we think, why law? Could it be anything other than laws, anything other than commandments? Why law? In Exodus 19, the Lord gives us a little glimpse, a, a glimpse behind the curtain, so to speak, about why law, one of the aspects of why laws are so important for our well-being. And I, I want us just to see that God's laws lead us to God's blessing. God's laws lead us to God's blessing. Exodus 19, uh, 4 and 5 says this. This is an interaction, uh, God and Moses. You yourselves, he says, have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you or carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In other words, the Lord says, you saw what I did. You saw that Pharaoh was no match for me. You saw that the Egyptian false gods were no match for me. They couldn't protect the Egyptians. They couldn't protect the Egyptian crops. They couldn't project protect the Egyptian animals. They were no match for me. Pharaoh was no match for me. I parted the sea and Pharaoh's army was destroyed. You've just seen that no one, nothing, no false god, no Pharaoh, no army can stand up to me. Now, therefore, verse five, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And so what we see as we move from Genesis and start to work our way through the Old Testament is that God is calling to his people. God called to Abraham in Genesis 12 and said, I want to rescue you and make a great nation out of broken and frail humanity, a nation that I will bless and that I will bless all the nations of the world through These people and now God is gathering Israel to himself and saying you are that promised people that covenantal people let's make a deal and so he rolls out 
uh, his constitution of sorts and says, if you will follow these instructions, I will be your God. You will be my people. And what you saw in Egypt, that deliverance, that power, that guiding, that protecting, that's how we're going to relate together. And this law is going to help you live as my, as God's holy people, unholy people with a holy God. And so the first four relate to how unholy people relate to a holy God. The six or five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of those commandments relate to how unholy people are going to relate to each other in a ways in a way that shows that they are recipients of his divine grace for the purpose of his glory. How do they relate to each other so that all the nations of the world see them recognize that there's something different, not just different, weird, different, good, and praise God. And so we see that God's laws lead to God's blessing. And so you might even say that God's laws are like a present, right? Uh, For the kids in the room, that's something that is visual. Uh, You think about Christmas morning and you think about presents under the tree. Maybe you have a birthday coming up and you think about what you want to be in those presents, the way that it's wrapped. Maybe it's Star Wars wrapping paper. Maybe it's princess wrapping paper, but you see the gift. uh, You want it. And so God wraps the mother of all gifts. Um, It looks beautiful. And he chooses Israel to give it to. And he gives it to his people in the form of a promise and in the form of a law. And says, take it. Open it. It's really good. And, and so we just have to see that God's laws are not designed to make our lives miserable. Uh, kids in the room, how many of you like laws and rules at home any kid want to raise their hand and say i just love laws it makes me feel so good when someone tells me what time to go to bed what food to eat first on my plate before dinner or before dessert um what i can do when i'm outside kids any kids like those laws no no uh kids how many of you have a bedtime maybe it's summer that might be the wrong question right now most of you have some sort of bedtime during school at least Summer's dicey. To most of us, well, to adults, bedtime is a beautiful thing. To kids, bedtime is is a terrible thing, right? It's the end of toys. It's the end of fun. It's the end of books and stories and movies and TV shows and video games, playing outside. It's light until like 1030, so you could play forever. But it's the end of fun. It's it's. Boring. You don't want to go to bed. You're not tired. You never want to go to bed. But your mom and dad know that if you don't get sleep, you're going to wake up in the morning cranky. And if you're cranky, you're not going to treat people well, and you're not going to respond well to your parents, and you're probably going to get in trouble. Your parents don't want you to get in trouble, so they do something good for you and put a healthy boundary so that you get enough sleep. If it's school season, if it's a spring or the fall, uh, and you're in school, they know that if you don't get enough sleep, and you go to school without enough sleep, you're going to have a very hard time paying attention, very hard time listening to your teacher, very hard time learning, and that's not going to go well for you. They want you to learn, so they do a very good thing for you and have some sort of healthy bedtime. If you're sick, your parents know, kids, that if you don't get enough sleep and you're sick, your body won't have the energy, won't have the time that it needs to help heal your body, to help fix the sickness 
you need rest to get better. They don't want you to be sick for any longer than, than you have to be for many reasons. So they do a very good thing, and they put a rule in place to give you plenty of sleep. Their rules are for your good. God's rules are for our good, for protection uh, from things that will harm us, and to lead us in holy living in relation to God, uh, where his blessings are rich and immense. And so what's fantastic about the sequence of events here in Exodus is you have 18 chapters of just God's abundant favor on these people. Before he ever comes with the law, he rolls out 18 chapters of faithfulness, provision, protection, rescuing them out of slavery, fighting all their battles, liberating them from everything and everyone that had power over them. And then he comes to them and says, you have seen all of this. If you will obey my commands, I will be your God and you will see more of this as I will go before you, protect you from your enemies, bless you. I will be your God and you will be with me. Let's take a look at some of those rules. Uh, And kids, you got to know, you're not the only ones that don't like rules. So if you're here and you're a kid and you think, when do I get to make the rules? I hear this often at home. I wish I could make the rules, Dad. What's the implication? My rules are terrible. And if the kids made the rules, they'd be wonderful. Um, Kids, uh, it's not just you that doesn't like rules. Your parents, your grandparents, your aunts, your uncles don't like rules either. They don't like people telling them how fast they can drive. Uh, They don't like people at work telling them what time to show up or what to do while they're there. Uh, Kids, your parents don't like uh, someone telling them what they can build on their property and what they can't build. And if they are going to build something, how it's supposed to be built. And someone's going to come and check their work. Kids, you're not the only ones who don't like rules. Uh, Let's take a look at at some of the Lord's here, uh, this Ten Commandments section of Exodus chapter 20. Uh, Let's look at the first three Verses 3 through 7, this is, you shall have no other gods before me. Number 1, you shall not make any carved images and worship that carved image. That's number 2. And the third is, you shall not use the name of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Exodus 20, starting in verse 3. The Lord says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity or the sin of the fathers on the children to the third and to the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take, this is the third one, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Verse 3, have no other gods before the one true God. Uh, Yahweh is God's covenant, keeping his personal name. He says, you shall have no other gods but me, not make any carved images, and you shall not use the name of the Lord. You shall not use the name of Yahweh in a way that is unworthy. Now, it might seem unnecessary, repetitive. It might seem like he's talking down to them. How is it possible that Yahweh, how is it possible that the one true God needs to tell this group of people who has just 
seen a dramatic display of power. They have just been rescued out of slavery. Their enemies have just been crushed by no act of their own. Nothing they did. God did it all. He went to them. They didn't choose him. He initiated it. He carried it out. He brought it to completion. Why does God need to start off with this 10-part constitution? And the first three basically say, no other gods, no other gods, no other gods. Keep in mind, the people of Israel have essentially spent all of their lives, the current generation has essentially spent all of its life in captivity, in Egypt, in a country that is polytheistic, many gods, in a country that is pantheistic, worshiping aspects of creation as if creation is manifested with God's presence. And so in many ways, the people of Israel, their lives have started to resemble the culture that they lived in more than they resemble the people of God that they are called to to be why are they so attracted to false gods uh, a, a carved image of an animal an altar where they would offer sacrifices to a carved image that they bought or that they made to an animal i'm trying to imagine what that would look like in our home i can't carve and i can't make things so you'd have this really gnarly looking hunk of wood or metal or rock And I'm trying to envision what it looks like to tell the kids that we're going to offer a sacrifice to that rock. And they're trying to tell them it's a cow. It doesn't look like a cow to me. I don't know what that looks like. Why is that so attractive to them that through the entire history of Israel, they're going to struggle back and forth between following Yahweh and worshiping these clunks or pieces of rock and metal and wood? and so just here's a couple here's a couple things that I think made these idols, these false idols, false gods, really attractive to the people of Israel, to the people of Egypt, and to culture at large at that time. Um, the first is this system of fake gods appealed to their sense of control and need for power. See, if something happened in your life that you didn't like, if you uh, were sick, if the crops were poor, if your animals were unhealthy, and you had an altar to an idol in your home, an altar to a false god in your home, you could offer a sacrifice to a god or goddess, a fake god or goddess of fertility, and your the hope or what they believed was that then their animals would Uh, reproduce or their land would yield a bountiful harvest and so it appealed to their sense of control to their sense of power where they could control the gods they could control their own destiny if something wasn't right they could fix it by worshiping as they believed the gods wanted them to worship before we dismiss that appeal to power that appeal to control I would ask you to consider, have you ever had the thought that if you do what God has asked you to do, he is in some way indebted to you and will protect you or bless you? If I go to church, even regularly, 
if I help out somewhere, if I get involved, I, I've got this maybe brother or sister that's not doing well, I'll help them financially. God would want me to do that. I don't want to do it, but God will want me to do it. I'll do that. And God, I hope you see, I hope you didn't miss God what I just did. Remember, I'm helping here. Don't want to, don't have the money to, but I'm doing it anyway. You owe me. Uh, and, and often we can even see how we make uh, the things that God has instructed us to do, Christian behavior, obedience to him, something where we try to coerce protection or blessing out of him uh, because we are just as attracted. We have that same sin nature that wants to be in control, wants to have power when we know that what God has called us to is a letting go of our power and yielding to him. And we find ourselves trying to coerce or manipulate protection and blessing uh, even from the one true God. So the false system of gods gave the people a sense of control, a sense of power, a sense of access to what they believed was a divine power. Another thing that it did was uh, it created a very convenient system for them to live however they wanted and still be protected or get favor from a fake, false, supposed God. And, and what I mean by that is um, they could pick which God to worship. The gods asked very little of them. So in this religious system, all they had to do is offer some sort of sacrifice, food sacrifice, drink sacrifice, to that God. They could live however they wanted. They could make all the choices. They could do anything they wanted. They just needed to offer that sacrifice and then they were good with that God and that God would protect and bless their family. And so it appealed to their sense of autonomy. It appealed to their sense of I get to choose for myself to live how I want to live. Nothing compels me to do what I don't want to. Nothing has power over me to direct me to do something I might not want to or might be uncomfortable it appealed to their sense of independence to choose for themselves to not submit to a divine authority. The gods asked virtually nothing and promised everything. Not, not entirely unlike uh, how our culture treats uh, religious things today where you see uh, many grab uh, from the scientific community, from the philosophical world, from the religious community, bits and pieces of what they think is sensible, stir it all together in a stew, and it becomes a, a, wor a religious worldview where, in a sense, what a person has done is come up with their own religious system based on what makes sense to them that allows them to dictate how they follow God rather than discovering what it is that the Lord wants and submitting to the Lord. Uh, another thing that it appealed to is uh, not just their sense of convenience, not just their sense of uh, power, um, also a system of indulgence. Uh, all sorts of horrible practices became associated with false idol worship. And the sense was that the idols wanted some sort of sacrifice so the more that you sacrificed, the more likely that false idol was to protect or bless your family. Interestingly enough, what they believed the idols required of them often was some sort of uh, self-serving, indulgent 
act. And so in a sense, uh, well, we have a bunch of kids in the room. Kids like Snicker bars. Kids like Skittles. Kids like all sorts of candy. If I had candy bars up here, kids would come running forward and mock me to answer questions, to do jumping jacks, to win candy. They would do anything. Uh, at least my kids would. And it's the religious system was equivalent to creating a, a false idol and saying that idol wants me to offer Snickers sacrifices. So every Snickers I eat is a sacrifice to that God. So the more Snickers I eat, the more that God is going to bless me. And it became an incredibly indulgent system where everyone did what they wanted in excess. Uh, so the false God system was essentially a license to sin in any way that they wanted, believing they could live however they wanted. Nothing had uh, power or demands on their life. And these false gods would protect and provide. And so God says, no, no, no. You have seen my power. You have seen what I have done. Those false gods were powerless. They were useless. They could not protect Egypt, Pharaoh, the animals, the land. I have power over all that. Do not worship any other God. Do not make carved images. Do not use the name of the Lord in any unworthy way. Uh, let's continue verses uh, 4, 5, and then 13 through 17. Uh, the rest of the commandments, uh, verse 4 continues with, or the fourth command continues with how we relate to God. And then the final six, how a holy people unto the Lord relate to each other. Verse 8 is command number 4. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It actually goes from 8 to 11. The command to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy is the longest command by volume of words in Hebrew of any of the Ten Commands, which is interesting because for many of us, the command to keep the Sabbath holy kind of feels like an add-on bonus. It kind of feels like extra credit at school. Like if your grades are good enough, you don't really need the extra credit. And so there's something significant with the Sabbath where we are prohibited from doing the ordinary toiling work that we have done on the other six days for the purpose of not just staying in bed all day and watching movies, but for the purpose of reorienting our life around our Father who rules all, where we, in a very practical way, demonstrate that we trust that He's in control because we set aside our efforts to control in our work, our effort to control in the sense of producing uh, economically. Um, it's this pause that demonstrates complete trust, uh, obedience, and worship. Uh, continuing, uh, verse 12, be begin the final six. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. Honor your father and mother. You're headed to the promised land. You want to stay there for a long time. This is going to be key to that, relating to each other as God has instructed as it relates to mother and father. Verse 13, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not essentially lie against your neighbor. Uh, verse 17, and you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Uh, verse 17, if it was written... Uh, for Douglas County, specifically, it would say you shall not cover, covet uh, your neighbor's barn. Uh, 
you shall not covet your neighbor's pickup truck. Uh, you shall not covet the size of the antlers uh, in the living room uh, of your neighbor. Uh, and it is interesting, though, that most of us are acutely aware of what we don't have and just foggy as can be when it comes to what God has done for us. And each of these commands uh, would be worth spending a whole week on. I think the command to not commit murder is interesting. And in Matthew 5, Jesus even unpacks that in a, in a more extravagant and detailed way. Uh, but the sense of the command uh, of don't murder was not uh, necessarily speaking of capital punishment because the death penalty was something that was embedded in Hebrew law under the discretion of the Lord. The Lord, when they go into the promised land, is going to direct them to drive out the Canaanites, to drive out the people that inhabited the promised land, to make that a place for God's people and for God to dwell with his people. How are they going to drive them out? It's going to be through war. They're not going to put letters in their mailboxes asking them to politely leave the cities that they've built and the crops that they've planted. That is going to be a violent thing. That is going to be a war-driven uh, effort. And, and so we are going to see life taken, but the prohibition, the command not to murder is the command that no person is supposed to be making judgments on life and death. That is God's job alone. And Jesus is going to speak to more of that uh, in Matthew. The command to not commit adultery is called the great sin. Often in the Old Testament, it disrupts the created order that God intended for man and for women as a representative of his relationship with Christ and the church. And so we walk through these commands and we can see how, if followed, it would be a really special community that would look different than culture, that would show, wow, how is that possible? It would point to the glory of God. The idea here is that they are divine recipients of his grace to the display of his glory throughout the world. Ten laws, ten commandments. If you read the five books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, you'll come up with about 613 commands. 613 pieces of instruction or commands to do something or commands not to do something. 613. And so one of the questions is, why so many laws? And there's a bunch of answers to that question. Some of those laws have to do with a monotheistic culture, one God, and how different that is in culture. Uh, some of those laws have to do with undoing aspects of culture that were built around idol worship. And so there's a number of laws as you read through those books where you go, that doesn't make any sense. And the reason it doesn't make any sense is because the law was designed to help God's people extract themselves from a culture built on false idol worship. And so they were instructed to do the opposite of what culture did at the time. But the question, why so many rules? And I would suggest that this impossible standard, 613 laws, I mean, it's like 
driving to Portland and trying to play the silent game with your kids and say you'll get a sucker if you get all the way to Portland without being silent. You know they can't do that. That's impossible. It's three hours if you're lucky. Uh, It's an impossible task for most small children. 613 laws. That seems impossible. And so uh, I would suggest a significant aspect of this impossible covenant, impossible arrangement is that it represents the impossible distance between us and God, the impossible uh, canyon between us and him because of our sin. And it drives us to him, not to the law. It drives us to dependence upon God. And so one of the things that the law does, it doesn't just lead to his blessing, but it shows us our failures. I have uh, my son's metal detector up here with me. It's a very fancy metal detector. Uh, probably not. Um, but some of you know that, that metal detectors have a couple coils in here, and, and there's a coil that transmits um, electricity, and there's a magnetic field that's created. And so as you move this around, the magnetic field is moving around with the head of the metal detector. And there's a second coil in there such that when the first creates a magnetic field and it hits or comes into uh, the space of a metal object. That metal object creates its own magnetic field and the second coil receives that and it starts to beep. And so if there's, oh, there's batteries in this, cool. So if there's batteries and you move it around, at some point you might discover that there's a pocket knife buried beneath the stage or a scrap piece of metal that we didn't throw away when this was being built. But essentially, the metal detector shows me something that's right here that I can't see. Something that's here that I wouldn't have known about without the tool. And so when we think about God's law, I want you to think about it like a metal detector for sin, showing us the sin in our hearts. God already knows it's there. The tool of the law helps us to see the sin that is in our hearts. And we see the people of Israel crumble under the weight of the law in just a matter of days with the golden calf, right? And so Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's up there for less than 40 days. In less than 40 days, they essentially forget everything that God has done for them. In less than 40 days, they look around at their circumstances. Oh no, Moses isn't here as if Moses was the provider of all of their protection and blessing. They freak out, make this golden calf and begin to worship it. And the psalmist in Psalms 109 speaks to what they have done in this great failing of their part of this deal with God. The psalmist in 106 verse 20 says, They exchanged the glory of God, all-powerful God, for an image of an ox or a cow that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Wouldn't we confess that we have often forgot God, who has done great things in Egypt and great things in our life, as we've looked around and been afraid of what we've seen, been afraid of something new, been afraid of bad news that we've received, been scared about something that we feel like is outside of our power to fix or to control and believe that in some way we are the ones who create peace and joy in our life rather 
than submitting ourselves to the Lord and we freak out and we forget all that God has done. The psalmist says they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. And so this, this kind of leads us into our, our final point uh, from Matthew 5. God's law leads to his blessing. It shows us our failures and it ultimately leads us to Jesus. It, the law points out the fact that we keep failing and we will keep failing, that we're not good enough and that we're never going to be good enough. So when Jesus comes in Matthew 5, uh, verse 17, he's speaking to the people and he says, don't think that I have come to undo all of this law. He says, I have come to fulfill it. Verse 17 of Matthew 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so what we understand Jesus to have done is to become and be the faithful covenant partner that Israel couldn't be, be the faithful covenant partner that we couldn't be. Israel failed repeatedly. We fail repeatedly. Jesus didn't. And so there's some interesting parallels between Jesus and the Hebrew people at this point. Uh, the Hebrew people pass through water on their way out of Egypt as God parts the sea. Jesus passes through water at the beginning of his earthly ministry when he's baptized. The Hebrew people are tested in the wilderness, tested in the desert. Jesus is tested after his baptism as he goes into the wilderness and the enemy comes and tries to trick him, tries to deceive him, tries to cause him to turn his back uh, on the Father. Jesus is called out of Egypt. You may recall that he flees to Egypt when he's just like a toddler. His parents take him there for protection. And the scripture says that he's called out of Egypt back into Galilee. We see the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people called out of Egypt in, on path to God's plan. You heard in the video, the narrator said Moses was a mediator for the people of Israel. Jesus is going to be described as an advocate or a mediator between us uh, and the Father. And, and so when we think about covenant and our, our sin, you can either sit with your sin and become burdened and crushed by the weight of it and quit you can take the burden of your sin and vow to do better, or you can turn it over to Jesus. And so I've heard it said uh, to think too much of yourself, which is often what happens when we try to white-knuckle it and do every good Christian thing we can, hoping to earn God's favor. Uh, to think too much of yourself uh, is not what God wants uh, to think less of yourself, which is what happens when we come face to face with the weight of our sin and give up and quit and are crushed by it. It says neither of those are honoring to God. Uh, the Father sent the Son, Jesus, to come and be the faithful covenant partner that we could not be. We know in Matthew that Jesus takes these 613 laws that are sort of distilled into 10 with the 10 commandments and issues Two, in summary of all of that, uh, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. And Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's one. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Uh, and so Jesus doesn't abolish the law. Jesus comes and uh, helps the people focus 
And so a question we might ask is, well, well how, do, how do we do that? It's kind of easier when there's lots of laws and, and lots of instructions. You can sink your teeth into that. Um, I, I love what Paul says. Uh, Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the protector or the perfecter of our faith. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. What do we want for our kids? Don't we want them to look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith? We want them to watch our example, but don't we even more want them to look to Jesus, to fix their eyes on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of their faith? When our kids are at school and surrounded by other influences and other voices, don't we want them to fix their eyes on Jesus and to not be distracted by what other kids say they should do or shouldn't do, what is cool or what isn't cool, if they're valuable, if they're not valuable? Don't we want our kids to fix their eyes on Jesus? When difficult things happen, when they get cut from a sports team, when they get left out of something at school and they don't feel like they have any friends, uh, if there's, when there's a bully, all sorts of things, don't we want our kids to fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of their faith? It means thinking more about what Jesus says about me than what somebody else says about me. It means he's the one I imitate, not people around me. Uh, Parents, wouldn't we agree that our our kids face challenges today that are just different than what we faced? Wouldn't we agree that there are pressures at younger ages that are just real for our kids that are different than what we faced? Uh, Every age, every generation faces sin. Every age, every generation faces uh, to to follow the Lord versus to follow the flow and the current of culture. But wouldn't we agree our kids have some tough obstacles in front of them? I want to pause before we wrap up and and just maybe if we could have all the kids under the age of like 18 stand. uh, And we just want to pray for our young people. Uh, We just want to beg the Lord on their behalf to to save them and to lead them and to draw them so that they fix their eyes on him. So kids, if you're under the age of 18, would you just stand? I know it's embarrassing. We're not going to look at you for long. I'm going to pray so everyone's eyes will be closed in just a second. But if you would just stand for a second, we want to spend a minute as a church family uh, committing you to the Lord, asking for his power over your life, uh, for his spirit to draw you to himself, for you to become so delighted in him that what kids at school say doesn't matter because you know what God says about you. Uh, let's, let's pray together. Lord, we love our kids and we know that you love them. Lord, I confess that sometimes we look around and we see the pressure that they face, the decisions that they have to make, the 24-7 bombardment of culture, bombardment of what they ought to be, what they ought to do, what they ought to look like, 
who they ought to be around, the kinds of friends they should have, the kinds of friends they shouldn't have, the things that they should be a part of, the things that they should be doing that seemingly everybody else is doing. And so, Lord, we just ask for your spirit to come over them, to protect them, to bless them, to protect, Lord, the path of their life, that your spirit would call to them and draw them unto yourself, Lord, that they might be so confident in who they are in you, uh, that peer pressure melts away, Lord, uh, for specific instances, Lord, good friends, we pray for good friends, we pray for good mentors, uh, teachers that will point them to Jesus, circumstances in life that will cause them to realize, Lord, that they need you more than anything, that will cause them at a, even a young age to understand that the attraction of so many things that appear to be good, Lord, leads to destruction. And in fact, uh, narrow is the path to life. Lord, we pray that they would find it uh, not blind luck. We pray that your spirit would draw them to the path of life, that they would fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of their faith. And Lord, may we as a church, as their church family, Lord, may we not point the finger at the younger generation and criticize or demean or be derogatory. Lord, may we be part of pointing the next generation to you. May they know what it looks like to fix their eyes on Jesus because, Lord, they see every day in our lives what it looks like to fix their eyes on Jesus. Lord, we commit our kids to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, kids. That was longer than I expected. I apologize. Uh, parents, adults, uh, would you grab some mother or father today or next week and just say you're praying for their kids, whether you're involved in kids' ministry or not involved with kids' ministry, uh, whether you know a family with young kids or don't know a family of young kids, would you just commit to praying for some of these families, praying for some of these kids, and let someone know that you're doing it? It's so encouraging to know that there is a family of people here caring for our kids. And then there's just this reality that we that we got to end with it, that many of our kids will understand what it means to follow Jesus uh, by how they see mom and dad following Jesus. And so when Paul says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, do the kids around you know what it looks like to fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of their faith, because they've seen you do it? Do they know what it looks like to yield to him in difficulty because they've seen you yield to him in difficulty and seen him be faithful? Do they know what it looks like to fix their eyes on Jesus even when they fail because they've seen you fail and seen you fix your eyes on Jesus and seen you apologize for losing your temper, for blowing it, for whatever you did. And because of that moment, they now know how to handle failure themselves. They know how to fix their eyes on Jesus even in the midst of failure, even in the midst of difficulty. If you're here today, Hebrews 12, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus, who made peace with God on our behalf, the faithful covenant partner that we couldn't be so that when the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus applied to our account. Church, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith.